everybody, I'm Dr. Deb, and welcome to another episode of PTSD and Beyond. Welcome to the PTSD and Beyond podcast, where we give you insights into post-traumatic stress, trauma recovery, healing, and beyond. I'm Dr. Deb Lind, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind, touch your heart, and connect with your spirit, and also give you a greater understanding of yourself and others on this healing and recovery journey walked by so many of us before, wounded healers with lived experience and heroes. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into possibilities and purpose, hope, and inspiration. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. One last thing, guys, before we dive into today's episode, if you'd like an ad-free experience and like early access to new episodes and special events, I want to let you know you can join us at patreon.com. That is patreon.com forward slash PTSD and beyond. All right, let's do it. Hey, everybody, it's Dr. Deb here with PTSD and Beyond. Say, before we get into today's episode, I want to give a little preview of the person who is our honored guest. And it is an honor because have you ever met a couple people that you're just like, gosh, you know what? You guys are really knocking it out of the park with doing something to better the world. Like relentless. It's it's like, it's like you know, you ever see like a, a dog with like that toy in their mouth and they're shaking it and shaking it and shaking it. And no matter who comes by, no matter what happens, no matter what tree, they're not distracted at all. They, they got that toy and they are not letting go. They're not letting go. And when you meet somebody who has a passion about bringing information and not just to awareness, but I mean, in your face, like we cannot ignore this any longer. They're using their skills and their talents to bring a social message of we cannot ignore this any longer. And that's what we got today again. So remember back in June, we had Frank Connolly on from the documentary, Those Who Serve. And today, today we have Jeff Werner, Emmy Award winning producer, director, editor, of documentaries, feature films, and motion picture advertising, who also was part of producing and directing the documentary, Those Who Serve. Again, calling out, calling out the injustices with our criminal justice system, the three combat vets, the role of post-traumatic stress, and in addition to saying, yo, man, we got to do something about this, to say, what are we going to do? See, a lot of people will sit there on the sidelines and bitch and complain that shit needs to change, but they never take action in helping that change. And this documentary, if you haven't seen it, I want you guys to go check it out. The links are going to be in the show notes. Listen to this podcast. Check it out with, yes, Jeff Werner. And go back. Go back to June and listen to the one with Frank Connolly. All right. I think that's enough of me blabbing on. Let's get going and let's listen to the episode with Jeff Werner. All right, you guys, let's take what resonates and go beyond. Hey, everybody. It's Dr. Deb here with PTSD and Beyond. Good morning to you. And guess what? We've got a special, special surprise 
So back in, in June, we had guest Frank Connolly that came on that talked with us about the Emmy Award-winning documentary, Those Who Serve. And today we have the Emmy Award-winning director, editor, as well as the person who produced, wrote, and directed the documentary, Those Who Serve. Guys, let's give a heartfelt welcome to Jeff Werner. Jeff, welcome to PTSD and Beyond. Thank you very much, Deborah. Glad to be here. Well, we're super excited to have you come on. We were talking earlier uh, before recording about the need for education, awareness, as well as some changes within the judicial system for veterans who have post-traumatic stress that find themselves facing, you know, being incarcerated because of what post-traumatic stress results in their lives. So take us on the journey of creating creating the documentary and some nuggets that came out that we want to talk about leading back to those educational moments for folks. Well, um, I guess basically, first off, I'm a documentarian, so I do a lot of films um, that are uh, primarily about issues that matter, social issues that matter, and very often about um, social justice issues that that matter. Um, I did a film, uh, done several documentaries, and one of the documentaries I did several years back uh, for MTV um, was a film uh, about a boot camp for teenage girls who had committed crimes. And um, what it turned out to be actually after we had finished the film was I realized the film really was about how um, these girls, in every case, pretty much had been abused by um uh, a male relative or a friend or boyfriend or fiance or father. Um, and that that was kind of the um, back background cause for a lot of what their issues and their problems were that led to them breaking the law. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a woman who was involved in that particular film um, or helping us with that film at that uh, boot camp. Uh, suggested uh, that I go see because of the interest of the cause, the causation behind a lot of the acts by these girls. Suggested that I go to this um, veterans court that was down in Orange County here in California, uh, where Judge Lindley um, held a very special court that I had never heard of about before, just for veterans who um, were suffering from. Um, combat trauma or invisible psychological wounds from their service to their country. And um, she, in this courtroom, offered um, treatment instead of incarceration. Mm-hmm. And what they did was they found out, they they dealt with the um, cause behind the crime that was committed, whether it might have been um, uh, wife uh, beating or uh, drunkenness or um, uh, assault, they dealt with it by putting the veterans in an 18-month program. And after the 18-month program, if they completed it properly, they were their record was expunged and uh, they didn't have to serve time and they could go on with their life. Um, and I thought to myself, and it was a very moving day, it was, it was, these people had really given their all to the country and then found themselves unable to come back into society. Mm-hmm. And um, 
and I remember thinking to myself, well, this is a, a, a really interesting courtroom, and it was a really beautifully done um, court session. What do they do, though, when there's a capital crime? If somebody commits something that's actually even more serious in these particular issues, um, is there any mitigating circumstances? Is there any consideration for the veteran who went away probably or went abroad and joined the force, the armed forces as, um, in many cases, a model citizen? And because of the trauma and because of what they experienced in war, came back inalterably changed and no longer the person they were when they set out. And then how that all leads to potentially committing crimes of, against the very society that they risk their lives to protect. Right. So to me, that seemed like something worth investigating. Again, as a documentarian, I'd like to try to show the audience what the issue might be without saying to them what I want them to think. Right. But this is what's going on. Mm -hmm. And maybe you'll take away the idea of this, or maybe you'll take away the idea of that. Um, and in this instance, I thought it was a question worth asking what happens to the veterans who come back inarticulably change because of their service and wind up in the criminal justice system and uh, facing serious um, prison time. And um, so I did a lot of research and eventually found um, two cases, both murder cases, and one case of drug sales. Um, and I decided to follow those three cases in this film, Those Who Serve. And uh, because they were all three very different cases, um, I thought that also they would give different insight into the different levels of how the justice system treats these veterans and what may or may not be able to be done to improve the situation or find a more just solution. Did you find that there's a disconnect between um, the transaction of the actions within the legal system and the way of uh, treating something that is a causation uh, rooted in trauma? Yeah, I, I good question. I, I think what I found um, very often, and that's part of the educational thing we were talking about, was people knew very little about all this. Mm -hmm. uh, there was, in particularly in one case where I was present for the jury selection, there was an incredible lack of understanding and knowledge about PTS. Mm -hmm. There was um, a prejudice of anything that had to do with um, mental issues, psychological issues. Yep. And um, and I was a little bit surprised, but but then again, maybe not. Um, everybody, pretty much in the jury, when they were asked questions by the defense attorney, pretty much showed that they thought that this idea of PTS being actually a defense for having committed crimes was a get out of jail free card kind of thing. That right. somehow. This was kind of a little bit of mumbo jumbo psychological kind of stuff that really didn't pertain to uh, guilt or innocence, and um, and I don't and I don't think either in the film or neither of the people who are or talking about the issue are ever really saying that there isn't um, 
there, there doesn't need to be some payment made for crimes that are committed, but that there should be a mitigating circumstance and understanding that these people, through no fault of their own, very often came back in a situation where they wound up committing a crime because of their underlying wounds, their right. underlying trauma. Um, and so I think that, 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 you know, part of the th issue in terms of um, what needs to be addressed is I don't know if people really do make that connection between the cause stemming from uh, the service to one's country and the actual crime itself. Yeah, we're talking about cause and crime. And if I could have asked folks on the jury and during the jury selection at some point, where's where does the responsibility lie? Is it 100% with our uh, combat veterans or does the VA system and the armed forces, the way that they're structured, bear some responsibility for this. And the only thing I want to point out before circling back to answering the question is when people think about post-traumatic stress from combat, they think about, you know, explosions. And I want folks that are listening to understand that post-traumatic stress from combat doesn't necessarily mean explosion. It can mean witnessing heinous acts against another person while in the acts of a combat situation. It doesn't have to mean artillery fire. It can mean uh, other heinous acts that are being witnessed um, because working in this industry, and I've heard many stories, um, and I think that the education piece doesn't need to be graphic, but it needs to be defined. And I like when you say the word prejudice because a common word that's used right now is stigma. And I believe that stigma is is incorrectly used. The word we're really looking for is prejudice. So let's circle back to the question of where. What well, about responsibility? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I think um, there really are three kind of aspects to this um, issue. Really, it's it's the veteran before they come home or as they come home. Right. The veteran once they're in the system, mm -hmm. and the veteran in terms of how their system eventually deals with their case. And although our armed forces do an incredible job of representing and the power of America around the world and protecting us and and um, supporting our allies and creating a fighting force, which they have to do, that's their job, they have to create the fighting force. What they don't do as good a job is, is bringing us back, bringing the veterans back down to a civilian mindset mm -hmm. so there's an enormous amount of effort and money and and treasure spent and, and effort spent on trying to build up uh, a soldier to his or her best potential as a fighter yep. as a killer um but part and parcel of it is actually the acceptance by the military that they're going to bring the war back with them and right. they haven't and the military hasn't decided to try to address that aspect of it. So where you have a six-week boot camp to get into training to be a killer, uh, we don't have anything when you come back, basically. We have very little when you come back. Right. And there is a prejudice that is on both sides. There's a prejudice on the civilian 
population side towards the veteran who may be, you know, crazed veteran who returns home. Yeah, like with, it was in the 70s yeah. with Vietnam. Right. Yep. Mm-hmm. And there's a prejudice among the veterans who return. Mm-hmm. Um, they very often, in fact, I think something like there was a study that said two out of three veterans who are incarcerated didn't self-identify as veterans because they were ashamed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the idea, you know, it's it'll be tough if they were able to put together some kind of um, re-entry camp for 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 our military because um a veteran returning soldier wants to go home yes they don't want to spend six weeks coming down they don't want to relearn and retrain how to be a civilian they want to get home so there's going to be a resistance to admitting to the fact that you have pts or that you can't cope um another study i saw had 45 percent almost half of returning veterans saying they were not equipped to re-entry, re-enter um, uh, civilian society. Mm-hmm. So um, there is an enormous task ahead, I think, in terms of the military of dealing with that initial period, the returning, the re-entry of our soldiers um, back into our civilian society. And it'll take um, the same amount of time and treasure that it took to build them up right to bring them back there's an investment in the individual as well as the investment in the uh just as equally as the onboarding process as the transition out process and um sometimes when i i hear cases and experiences of lived experiences that folks have shared you know it just seems to be so transactional it's like the um the emotional component we're not talking about. We're talking about whether someone will call it factual information. Well, the behaviors are factual information. The and the emotions are factual. And sometimes um, people feel, I was just having a conversation this week about the perception of what resilience is. The social word of resilience means suck it up and you're not tough enough if you can't. There's something wrong with you, which projects to the individual who's suffering rather than what we're talking about. What is the root cause and how do we address the root cause and what ways can we so that way the effects of the cause can be um, diminished and in some cases even eliminated, which we call in in the PTSD beyond world breakthroughs for for people who um, have symptoms of post-traumatic stress. I mean, there's many situations where people are in denial because they don't want to admit it because of the stigma and the fear of it means there's something wrong with me. I'm not tough enough. And even if we look at ranks, I mean, there have been folks that have said, but I am, and they will share what their, their rank is. How can we, how can we move from dehumanizing to moving to humanizing and reconnecting that this is a person, this is a human being a soldier means a person, a nurse means a person, a doctor means a person, a student who's a survivor of gunfire is a person. How do we bring that back? And I like in the documentary, 
that you actually show that the humanness, you, you can feel it when you're watching the movie and looking at people's facial expressions. I mean, you guys do a great job of capturing the emotion of in that moment, which each person is experiencing, including, um, you know, watching women, female soldiers cry that, you know, or I have to get out of this environment. I, I can't be here. Many people can resonate with those situations and those lived experiences. How do we bring the human back into serving? Right. And I think you you see uh, in the film, I think, you as you point out, I think you see from the three uh, cases that we follow that each individual veteran um, is pained, mm-hmm. as we would be pained, is, is hopeful, as we would be hopeful, um, that they are um as you say i mean their humanity is so clear and yet the um a lot of what they're going through i think a lot of people and again this is part of the educational process but a lot of people find it all kind of um movie stuff it's like the idea that there might be a response to a loud noise yeah or the idea i mean in the film um uh, and I think maybe Frank even mentioned this moment, but in the film, I'm talking to one of the veterans, Mark, and uh, we're outside at a park and somebody is throwing a, a baseball in the distance against the backstop. And the sound of that ball, hard ball hitting the backstop stops Mark in his tracks. He just mm-hmm. loses his train of thought. And he's somebody who couldn't get on a bus. Um, he couldn't, he's somebody who couldn't drive because of IED issues. Right. Yeah. Um, so, it, it, and and those are all things I think that, although, as you say, are part of our humanity, I think also at the same time, feel a little bit, I don't know, filmic, or, or, or people are visually, I think, so um, video uh, literate that they envision these things as being more movie moments rather than real life moments for people that actually happen on a Wednesday afternoon in their life. Right. And, uh, and that's something I'm hoping that the film um, with enough people talking about it and discussing it and, and people like you, people get an idea of how real this is. Right. This is why for me with my lived experience, I don't watch scary movies. I can remember when I was, um, I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I must've been 16 years old. And my dad took me to go to the movies. My dad was a big movie dude. He was also a Navy vet. And um, we're watching the movie, The Accused, okay, with Jodie Foster. And I looked at my dad and I was so, I mean, you know. How old were you? About 16. (laughs) Okay. So. A little strong strong for a 16-year-old. Yeah, yeah, a little bit, don't you think? So I walked out of the movie and I I was hotter than a rooster at my dad. I mean, I just looked at him, shot him a look, and I walked out. And he comes out in the lobby and he's like, What's the matter? Where what what and I said to my dad, that could be me. That could be me. This is my life. I'm a woman. That could happen to me easily. And I don't find this movie to be entertainment. And why I share this example is because how, and I'm not trying to slam industries, I'm not trying to slam industries because don't get me wrong, there's there is a value of some stuff. How desensitized have we become? Um, to other people's actual lived experience because of the repetitive image or the repetitive messaging that 
it's become uh, normal as opposed to, you know what, this could actually happen to somebody and it could happen to somebody that I know or it could happen to myself. And um, no, this isn't something to be desensitized about. And we see it in generations um, with bullying online, for example, or graphic images online. And, you know, some um, folks think it's funny and it's a joke. And it's like that could actually happen to someone that you know or whether your daughter or your son, and it becomes personal and not okay when it becomes then our own lived experience. And I think this documentary from an educational component highlights some of this stuff, like within the judicial system. Normal doesn't mean healthy and that it's effective and it's working. Normal means this is a way that we've always done it and no one's challenged it enough to make a difference, to make a change. Um, and it's sometimes easier just to say this is the way that it's always been, but we've got you know, how many, depending on the data, 22 to 42 vets a day that take their lives because, because of what they've experienced. And that's not okay. One is not okay. And that's just the data that's reported. So that means we, our data is wrong. We do need to, to also, though, identify the fact that the overwhelming majority of veterans who return home, return home successfully, re-enter, go about their lives, right. become contributing citizens again. Um, but it is a good minority, a good portion of those veterans, um, somewhere around one in five, perhaps, um, who not only when they come back um, have trouble coping, but won't seek the help that they need. That's right. the other aspect of it. And if you think about the the 45% of, them, of veterans don't feel like they're ready to re-enter into civilian society and and do without any help, basically, and find themselves with PTS and, and with combat trauma, having trouble dealing with everyday life, perhaps self-medicate. Yeah. Um, and wind up committing a crime. They are then being prosecuted by the same government that actually sent them to where they actually wound up getting their their combat trauma where they wound up getting changed right uh, correct seriously changed so it's there's something very ironic about that full circle of of being prosecuted by the same government that sent you over there to risk your life and uh and i think if people have a sense of and i think more and more people do have a sense of it nowadays but if people had a sense of that individual who really was I mean, one of the veterans we talk about, um, this is his journey. He started out as a teenage missionary. He was a missionary for his church throughout the world, doing um, medical help and all sorts of stuff. And when he turned, uh, graduated from high school, he wanted to do something, wanted to continue doing things bigger than himself. Mm -hmm. And he thought something that was bigger than himself, rather than concentrating on himself, he was going to give himself to the military and he joined the Marines. Mm -hmm. And served honorably until he returned home, and then it then it fell apart. So that kind of a storyline, that kind of a journey for an individual, um, you know, could be any one of our daughters or sons or, or wives or husbands. And um, because of the nature also of the of warfare today, where people are surviving when they didn't used to survive. Yep. The, uh, the ability in the field to to administer medicines and and um 
take care of people that they, we couldn't take care of before. People are returning home, both physically and mentally wounded, yeah. and and um, and not being and not being addressed or treated appropriately. Yeah, you bring up another point too about family. So when people think about the soldier who has post-traumatic stress, those symptoms, um, they also affect the people around them, like, like their family members. And I think that we need to also talk about education in the sense for um, helping the individual as well as the spouse um, and even even their their extended family members, children, and and even their parents, because um, we can we can see it, especially with um, you know the what what spouses will say, you know whether someone's having a um, reaction uh, to a traumatic memory or you know how does this affect the family unit when somebody like you mentioned is being you know in the same system that sent them over to the combat um, experience, and now they're having another type of a traumatic experience. And if you do talk with people, I mean, there's there's many points in the, in the movie where this isn't what they want. They want to have, they want to feel better. They want some sort of stability. And when folks transition out of the service, you know, they, they lose their family. They Not family in the sense of spouse, but their, their family unit. Their unit is their family. Absolutely. I mean, to the to the man, they all comment on and bemoan the fact that they lost their family when they left. Yeah, and then the feeling of that family is impossible to recapture in civilian life, and um, and the the actual family, the the wife and children, struggle to match that kind of camaraderie, that kind of support system, and um, in the in the film, the, there's a story of one of the marines actually who is the husband of uh, one of the victim's sisters um he would not be able to do homework with his daughter he would lose patience he would get angry too quickly Mm -hmm. Um, there's the um, there's not only just the um the, the spouses and the 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 kids also and as you mentioned the parents almost to the to the in each individual parent of the veterans that we talk to, and even some that are not in the film, um, they to the person talk about how they could not recognize their child when they return. Yeah. They know they they've known their child for 18, 20, 25, 30 years. Yeah. And now the child is no longer that person. Um, there is a shot in the film of uh, Tony Strouth, one of the Marines, from when he was discharged as a marine and what he would look like when he was arrested mm-hmm. it's striking it's almost like that can't be because it's a totally changed individual and I mean physically and changed but yes. the mom would talk about not just how he changed physically but how he no longer was the guy he was before he left he just was not the same personality, the same character, the same strengths were gone. There were weaknesses that hadn't been there. Yeah. So there is a um, a real um, change in the human being that is part of this uh, judicial issue of the underlying causes that, ca- that that brought about this crime. How do we address those? How do we approach those? And what role do they play? You can't let people 
get out of jail for free. But they, there has to be some kind of understanding um, for these particular defendants in our judicial system who are our veterans. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was going to mention the image, too, because you, in addition to seeing the physical change, hearing the story, you know that there's a deeper level of change. So emotionally, mentally, physically, and um, almost unrecognizable. What are some things and some ways of suggestions that you know, um, you'd like to see some change bringing education. So that with an understanding, a deeper level of understanding, uh, awareness. So for the judicial system, as well as folks that are on juries, as well as people who practice within the system. So lawyers, paralegals, academia, upcoming uh, lawyers, as well as the mental health industry. What are some ways that maybe we can, because these are all folks that are part of our podcast audience too, what are some things that maybe we can share with them to spark some um, interest in becoming better educated? Well, um, there is an organization now that um, the Council on Criminal Justice in Washington, D.C. has a um, new commission, a Veterans Justice Commission that they have set up to address this issue and the educational aspect of this issue and then the legislative aspect of this issue um it's headed up by liam panetta and chuck hegel um both um major people in the our government in the past and involved in veterans affairs and um uh they are working on right now lobbying and talking to um state legislatures and and um congressional legislators, um, U.S. representatives, to um, talk about changing the um, the statutes that already exist and improving those that have already started to, to come into to effect. Um, we actually had a screening at the Capitol, um, a congressional screening for members of Congress and their staff uh, back in April. And um, there are people involved in Congress that are working on trying to make this something that is actually part and parcel of um, the law. Um, once, and that's, a, I think, a long way off, but it's really a real beginning. When I started this film and the first case we started filming in 2014, so it's um, almost 10 years ago, um, there was really no talk about this at all, really. There was some um, there were some examples of veterans courts that existed in the country, but the idea that there would be this full-blown effort to try to codify um, mm -hmm. this problem um, is, is new and I think exciting and, and I'm, I'm thrilled about it. Um, we are also, in terms of the film, we're trying to raise money to um, pay for professionals to produce uh, lesson plans and discussion guides because we'd like to get this uh, film out to an educational distributor, they need lesson plans and discussion guides, and they have to run the gamut of uh, high school and college um, level um, lesson plans and discussion guides. So um, we're trying to raise that money for that, for an educational release. I, I don't want to diminish the idea of a commercial streaming of the film because uh, I think more and more that people are familiarized with the issue um, as 
in a way that seems because the film is really even though it's a documentary it's not a document it's actually a, a, a news you can say for yourself because you've seen it but it's actually um a story about these three cases mm-hmm. and it's more of a courtroom drama than it is um a document about veterans and and the judicial system um so my hope is that through things like this uh, we'll be able to get to as you had mentioned, um, pre-law, law students, um, individual um, uh, firms that are interested in this type of stuff. And many of the firms are involved in veterans um, affairs, certainly, um, not only in terms of the criminal justice system, but in other mental health, um, uh, homelessness, uh, right. that kind of thing. Um, and, um, and same thing with the mental health industry. Um, I think mo- uh, medical schools and, um, uh, even in hospitals, these are all places where the film could be screened and people could at least get a, an inkling about what's going on and what has gone on. Uh, this is not a new issue. I mean, the, as you know, um, in terms of the military, um, post-traumatic stress has been around since there's been war. Yeah, over a hundred um, years of of data and research. Yeah, humans don't return from war without having been affected, or some having been severely affected, and they would call it um, in French. They used to call it, uh, I think it was called crise de cœur, a uh, crisis of the heart, and um, there were different pseudonyms for it. And as as uh, as time went on, shell shock was one I think from the First World War. Yeah. Um, in any case, um, so it's been around, and and it, the problem is right now that it's come home, and we're addressing it. Whereas we didn't. I mean, World War One, there were veterans who came home, and literally were just left in the street. I mean, they were just. Yeah. And we did not treat our Vietnam veterans. Right. Uh, today we're starting to think about this stuff, and um, and hopefully it will continue. It's a start, and it's a one of the greatest things is to start. Um, because it does give hope to people as well as future generations. Jeff, if there's three last things you'd like to share with our listeners, and thank you, by the way, for being here today, as well as listeners, thank you so much for being here today in uh, over the 100 countries. We greatly appreciate folks being here, but what are some last nuggets of wisdom you'd like to share with our listeners today? Well, it's my pleasure to be here, and I want to thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. And for your spreading of information and 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 your thoughtfulness in terms of how you're approaching. I noticed from behind you that you have a sign that says begin anywhere. Mm-hmm. So you, the idea that, that we have begun and that this will continue hopefully. And, uh, and you're certainly part of that. Um, I, my main thing would be as um, the, a country is as good as uh, its people and the, the more educated and more informed the people are, the better I believe the country will be. And I think that that's true about um, jurors and and lawyers and judges and um, in all fields. But in this particular endeavor of those who serve the film, those who serve, we're hoping to open the book on an issue that doesn't really seem to be addressed enough today. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are obviously many, many veterans returning from our recent engagements overseas in Afghanistan and Iraq. And we have to be ready to 
receive them and receive them with kindness and humility and understanding right. um, and, and enable them to also find their niche uh, in their civilian uh, reentry. Exactly. Exactly. Because after all, at the end of the day, we're all we have. We have each other. That's it. And they've, and they've as, as we say in the film, in fact, they took a pledge to protect us and we probably should take a pledge to protect them when they return. That's right. And that's a great, that's a great line right there. We're going to capture that one. So thank you so much again for being here today. It was a true pleasure. You bet. All right, you guys, this is Dr. Deb with PTSD and beyond all the information is in the show notes. Make sure you go over and check out the documentary. And if you do connect with Jeff, let him know that, Hey, I heard your episode at PTSD and beyond. It's always helpful to share that information because you know, we're going to say, Someone's going to say it with me at some point, Jeff. We're better together. We're stronger together. And take what resonates and go beyond. Mm -hmm.